0: we think it's, it's fitting that this Sunday, this Sunday of first, that we start uh, by talking about this stepping out on mission. Now, if, you're, if you've been at EBF at all, you know that normally we go through books of the Bible. On this first Sunday of the year, we, uh, we want to take some time and, and focus on this idea of being on mission, of bringing uh, God's hope and God's word, God's gospel to the world um, so today we've invited Jerry Root to open the word and to speak to us about evangelism, this work of sharing our faith. Jerry Root serves as the professor of evangelism at Wheaton College and is the director of Wheaton Evangelism Initiative at the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism. Clearly, this man is, is uh, equipped to teach us about evangelism. But personally, I, I uh, have some different titles that I know Jerry by. Uh, During my college years, he was my college pastor, and he was one of my football coaches. And I think it's fitting that on this week of firsts that I I talk about Jerry, we have Jerry speak, because Jerry is, is a man of many firsts in my own life. He was the first to walk me through romantic rejection. He was one of the first to tell me that I had potential for the kingdom. He was the first to put me in a small group and show me what Life Together was all about, he was the first to ask me the real questions, the real questions about my life and my character. You know, he was also the first person who loved me enough to confront me about bad doctrine and wrong views of God that I had in my life. Over the spring break of my freshman year, he took me to Canton, Mississippi, and he was the first to show me real cultural injustice And he was the first to show me the intersection between the gospel and working for change in our world, what that really looks like and what that means. So on on paper, Jerry Root is well qualified to speak to us today about evangelism and stepping out on mission. But as your pastor, I'm asking you to listen to this man, not for his degrees and those qualifications, but I'm asking you to listen to him for better reasons. Listen to him because he lives with and he loves Jesus listen to him because he loves to tell others about Jesus and he is great at helping people love Jesus more with that Jerry I love your brother I'm grateful for you bring us the word
1: when his beard turns fully white he'll finally be handsome Bald, bespectacled, and white-bearded—that's it. When they ask you about presents at Christmas time, don't be dissuaded by that. Just ask the follow-up question: Have they been good? Well, however they answer, they're cooked. So, anyway, thank you very much for letting me be here. I love your pastor and his wife. Um, I, when I coached football, I only had one first-team All-American uh, athlete, and he was an All-American behind John's blocking. John's a gentle Ben if you meet him in real life, but when he strapped on a football helmet, he was a force to reckon with. Anyway, I want to take us to one verse, it's in Philemon, verse 6, I'm going to be reading it from the NIV, 1984, uh, there's a lot of um, English translations, I like them all but one, and um, I read them all, all the different ones. 1984 NIV on this verse is, in my own opinion, the best translation of this verse. I translate it myself. I thought it was the closest, to the original. And Paul writing says, I pray that you will be active sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. The word full understanding, the phrase, is one word in the Greek, and it's epigonosco, it's the most intimate word for knowledge in the New Testament. And Paul is saying there's a level of intimacy we cannot know without that thread woven in the fabric of our spiritual life. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I worship you for the privilege of being here with John and Layla and their family, with this congregation they love so deeply and serve, and even with people who who are friends already that I know who are here. I am grateful. I'm grateful for the enthusiasm of the beginning of a new school year. I pray, Father, as this year begins, that there could be some things that will be said this morning that could be inspirational for these people throughout the year. It's nonsense to think that that could happen when one person speaks and a room is full of people whose hearts have different challenges, fears, uh, excitements, joys, sorrows, whatever. It's nonsense to think that one person, offering up the crumbs they offer, could say something that could touch every life. But once your son was offered not much more than crumbs, five loaves and two fish, and he blessed them and he multiplied them and everybody left satisfied. If, if he did it back then, would you please let your Holy Spirit come and do it again with the crumbs that are offered this day? That every person would hear something that would trigger something in their heart and that they would each know how deeply they are loved by you because you gave them what they needed to hear this morning. It will only happen if you're involved in the transaction. We pray that that would occur. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. I have to begin by saying I do not have the gift of evangelism. I go to places and they say, oh, we like to encourage people with the gift of evangelism to do it as if everybody else gets a pass jesus last word should be our greatest concern i i told the pastor one time i said "Well, we like to encourage the people with evangelism to do it at our church i said i want to preach at your church sometime so i could tell the people that don't have the gift of giving they don't have to give anymore and i don't want to go to the church where only those with the gift of mercy are being merciful that'd be a cold-hearted place all the gifts are places where all of us are to exercise in spiritual discipline. Some people have a unique aptitude for it. That's not been my case. Now, you have to take this completely by faith now, but I played football when I was in college. And, and, and I was a good football player on a great team. I wasn't the star. I started, but I wasn't the guy that was all conference. I had to be in the film room more frequently than the others. I had to be in the weight room more frequently. I had to do the stuff that the average person had to do who wasn't necessarily gifted if I wanted to compete. And I think as a result of that, I watched and studied the game. I think as a result, I was a decent coach. Let me be your coach, not as a person who has skill, but a person who's had to watch and learn from his circumstances so that I could encourage the bulk of you who maybe don't have the gift like me so that we could stay engaged and maybe you can learn secondhand some of the things I've learned. When Paul wrote this letter, he was writing from uh, under house arrest in Rome. He writes to the church at Philippi. He says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. How's that possible? He's in jail basically. I, I, I remember two different times in my life. I've had men come up to me and say, Jerry, you got to pray for me. I'm the only Christian at my place of work and I'm miserable. Both times I put my hand on their shoulder. I said, Lord, look how miserable my brother is. Please take him home to heaven today. Get him out of here so he'd be out of his misery. Both cases, they knocked my hand off their shoulder. They said, what are you doing? I said, well, there's two ways you can look at it. Either you're miserable or you're strategically placed. Start praying and opening your eyes and ask, God, why did you put me here? Paul's in a jail cell. He says, my circumstances have turned out for the great purpose." At the end of the book of Philippi, he writes them and says, The saints in Caesar's household greet you. How is it that he had his finger on the pulse of the Roman Empire when he's in a jail cell? He had a Praetorian Guard there. He wasn't without a captive audience. The guy was doing work. And I can imagine him sharing. He even says, this, the, the whole Praetorian Guard knows about my imprisonment. He wrote those letters he had been putting off. One was the church at Philippi. church at Philippi was a church that was born out of an earlier jail experience that Paul had. His eyes were not closed to the opportunity. They were open to the unique circumstances of where he was individually placed. And each of you have that opportunity, too. Sometimes you look at somebody else, you say, Oh, man, I wish I could be like them. Look what they're doing, and so on. Don't do that. God delighted in you being here. You know, it was, it was Oscar Wilde who once wrote... Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. And I think you just want to look at what God is doing in you and through you. So anyway, basically he says, if we tell others, we will experience a unique intimacy with God. How is it so? I want to look at three possibilities. If there's three, there could be 3,003, but we only have time for three right now. So first, if you share Christ, you will grow because people will start to ask you questions and you won't know the answers to the questions. I, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. My family went to a church, but it was an inner city a church, good-hearted people. They loved God, I think, and, 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 and I loved being around them. I loved church picnics and potlucks and all that stuff. But there was only one person with a college education in the whole church, and there was so much misinformation, and I'm just a kid, and I'm hearing this stuff from my adult, Uh, Leaders and I'm just assuming they know what they're talking about. And I was told if I went to a movie and Jesus came back while I was in the theater, he wouldn't go in the theater to get me. I'd just go straight to hell. I desperately wanted to see Walt Disney's The Shaggy Dog, but didn't know if it was worth risking my eternal destiny to go see. And the neighbor lady came down and asked my mom, could she take me and my brothers with her boys to see the shaggy dog? And I'm looking at my mother with complete ambivalence. I want to go on one hand, scared stiff on the other. And when my mother said it would be okay, I began to wonder if she really loved me, that she would put my life in eternal peril. <laughs> and I was told in a Sunday school class, if I lived a holy and righteous life all my life, but I have one bad thought, the last second of my life, I'd go straight to hell. I was always in trouble. There was no hope for me. So I thought, okay, i got this little window of opportunity. I might as well make the most of it before all hell breaks loose. I I didn't get involved in sexual things. I had a girlfriend who dumped me when I was a sophomore in high school for an older guy who took horrible advantage of her, and it hurt her and messed up her life. And I just thought, that's wrong when guys do that to women. On the other hand, I was a violent person. I used to take a gun to school. I did stupid stuff, drank too much. My mother found the gun loaded between my mattresses one time. She thought it was a starter pistol for track. She's looking at this thing, pulls the trigger, blows a hole through my mattress, lodges in the floor. She calls me up. I'm at a friend's house, and she is weeping, thinking I'm going to go to prison. She must have been knocked off of her balance a little bit because she gave me back the gun. Would you give the gun back to your 17-year-old boy afterwards? All of a sudden I saw the life I was living was hurting me and hurting the people who cared for me And I was in total existential despair, and that's how I went to college Somebody invited me an older brother invited me to a Campus Crusade for Christ meeting First time in my life. I heard that God loved me Unconditionally, I, I don't know a person who's lived honest life who doesn't want to be loved unconditionally Human love is great as far as it goes, but my guess is none of us have ever been loved perfectly by another human being. Think of it this way. Have you, can you honestly say you've loved utterly, unconditionally another person? My guess is we do the best we know how, but only one person loves you unconditionally. And not only that, he forgives us. He forgives us. I don't know a person who's lived honest life who fails to recognize they're messed up. And he forgives us. And third, he's willing to enter our our life and bring order out of the chaos. I heard that message and I took to it like a duck to water and I have never stopped being grateful. And I want everybody to know the motivation for sharing the gospel is because we're so overwhelmed with the love of God. We're like a grandmother who takes out the pictures of the grandkids because she loves them. We talk about what we love and so on. So I start sharing Jesus with people. And they started asking questions. And I had no clue. I, 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 I'm embarrassed to confess to you that I'd never heard the question or asked the question, if God's good and all-powerful, why does evil exist in the universe Till I started sharing the gospel? I've since written a book on that subject. It intrigues me. But I heard about it when I started sharing. I said, wow, that's a good question. I don't know. That's a great question. I won't leave a stone unturned till I could get back to you. How do we know the bible is really god's word how come christians say jesus is the only way what about other religions you've heard them all and i don't think you should ever be put off by a one of them and i would I, I, and those questions are not conversation stoppers either they give you the invitation to continue the conversation if you do dil, uh, due diligence and dig for the answer and i'd go back to people and i'd say this is what I've been finding in answer to that question you asked. It was a good question. You matter. And I want to communicate to you that you matter. I took your question seriously. And the conversation opens up again. And I found that I started to grow by hearing the questions. Questions I might not have heard had I not been engaged in sharing my faith. The other thing, too, is I learned not to be afraid of questions. C.S. Lewis said, If our religion is objective, we must never avert our eyes from those elements, and it would seem puzzling or repellent. For it's precisely in the puzzling or repellent where we begin to know what we do not yet know and need desperately to know. If you have no questions or doubts about your faith, you're delusional. You think you've achieved omniscience. Lean into the questions. There's a place to grow there. I I don't think any of us are very life-skilled. Nobody's ever ready to get married. If you waited till you were, you'd miss out on those joys. Nobody's ever ready to have children. I have four children and 15 grandchildren. Nobody's ready to have children. But if you waited till you were, the whole human race would end this generation. We function awkwardly. A toddler learning to walk falls down and gets bruised. A a five-year-old taking the training wheels off the two-wheeler falls down and gets abrasions. The adolescent's picking up a skateboard, sprains an ankle, breaks a wrist. I would like to say to you, if you're not awkward someplace in your life, you're not growing. Don't be afraid of the awkwardness. Lean into it. Grow. And if you share your faith, you will grow. I I, I finished my Bible. I started reading the Bible when I was a freshman in college. As soon as I became a Christian, I thought everybody should read it from cover to cover. I finished my 47th read this summer. I'm going to finish tomorrow my 33rd read of the New Testament, besides those 47 reads. I've read through the Greek Bible twice. Every time I read it, I see something I don't understand. Are you there? Every time I read it, I see something I didn't see before. Where did that come from? All this evidence that maybe it really did come from omniscience. But if I don't understand it, I just put it in the pending tray. Next time or two through it, I see what the answer is. Somebody says to me, oh, the Bible's got so many contradictions. I say, you're not persuading me. I've stayed inclined. And I've seen so many wonderful things and how they get resolved in time. And I I just want you to know, you may have confusion with it. I've sailed my ship a little further on that sea than you have. And I want you to know the heart of the message of this book hasn't changed. It's this, the God of the universe knows you and loves you. And forgives you and wants to be a part of your life and so you hear people ask the questions stay inclined be in the word be bold be awkward grow second you'll grow because people will scrutinize your life you'll grow because people ask you questions you'll grow because people scrutinize your life I'm a messed up person I came to Jesus with lots of garbage I'm working on it. I'm seeing progress. I'm happy about that. But I, I guarantee you, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. If you're not examining your life, scriptures repeated over and over again, watch and pray, examine yourselves, and so on. If you're not examining your life, believe me, those around you will feel it's their duty to do it for you. I remember as a new Christian, I prayed, oh, Lord, discipline me. Discipline me, Lord. The next, the next three months were the worst months of my life. Everybody I knew felt it was their duty to come and make a path to me and point out stuff that was messed up. It was hard. I, I've never prayed. The Lord, discipline me ever since. I pray, O oh Lord, keep me from a stiff neck, give me a soft heart, and teach me vicariously through the mistakes of others, so I won't have to go through them myself. God is gracious to us. He wants to make us look more and more like the Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, but if that's true with me, he's got a lot of work to do. And sometimes he does that weeding and pruning in the very place where he has missional concerns. And if we get involved in those things, people will scrutinize your life. I knew a man once who said, I've never put a Christian bumper sticker on my car. If I did, I'd have to drive better you go share your faith it's like putting a Christian bumper sticker on your life people want to know if it's real and you're going to find sometimes it's not what it should be in ways that you wouldn't have found out otherwise and sometimes you're going to encounter somebody maybe you hurt them or maybe you're going to find somebody else who's living in the wake of another well-meaning Christian who didn't do it so well with this person and hurt them you share your faith, you run into these people what do you do then? What I've learned is I look at this person and I say, Tell me your story. When they tell me their story, if, if they were hurt by somebody else, if they're hurt by me, I just ask their forgiveness. Try to do better. Learn from them. Let them know I learned from them. I've seen guys who confronted me about stuff come to faith three years later because they saw I took seriously what they said. But if I meet somebody who's been wounded by somebody else, I say to them, Tell me your story. And I listen to it, my heart breaks. And I tell them my heart breaks about that. And I say, I'm a Christian. Let me stand as a surrogate in the place of that person who hurt you and ask for your forgiveness. And I want to do this because I wouldn't want anything to keep you from seeing how deeply you are loved by God. You'll grow if you share your faith because people scrutinize your life. You'll grow because people ask you questions. Lastly, you'll grow because you'll start seeing Jesus show up everywhere in your life. In point of fact, I don't think we take Jesus to anybody. He's already there. He's more in love with every person you ever meet than you and I could ever be. We go to make explicit what he might already be doing in the circumstances of each person's life as he woos them to himself. I think in that regard, we're really God's ambassadors. People want to know about Jesus. How do I know? Jesus said the fields are white unto harvest. He said, the problem isn't whether or not there are people out there who want to know. The problem is, are there people willing to tell? He said, pray the Lord of the harvest, raise up laborers. My guess is if you pray that, it won't be long before you'll be one of those laborers. I, I, I had a friend, he, he pastored a church, and he said that he had a man in his church who uh, was a businessman, a very successful businessman, started an engineering business from scratch, He was on the board of the church where this pastor served. But he said, the businessman said, I want you to come see my plant. Uh, Let me show you around. We'll go to lunch and talk about church business afterwards. My pastor Fred said he went to lunch with this guy. He couldn't believe the genius of the guy. 500 employees. He couldn't believe the complexity of the company. He couldn't believe the relational skills of this man. He walked through and he said, Hey, George, good to see you. Weren't you in that bowling league championship last night? How'd that go? Sylvia, it's great to have you back after your maternity leave. I hope you brought pictures of the baby. You need some more time off. My friend said, I knew him for years at church, but I never really got to know him till I got to know him in his workplace. You can know God for years at church, but you'll never really get to know him till you get to know him in his workplace. If you share Christ, you'll grow because people will ask you questions. You'll grow because people will scrutinize your life, and you'll grow because you'll start seeing Jesus show up everywhere. And it's kind of cool. So how do we do it practically? Let's look at some things. Number one, start with prayer. When I became a new Christian as a freshman in college, the pastor of the church I went to said, if God answered every prayer you prayed this last week, would there be anybody new in the kingdom? If I'm not praying for people to come to faith, I'm probably missing the opportunities when they percolate in conversations. He also said people who pray see lots of coincidences. How about if I just use prayer as a means to share the gospel? If you're more introverted and shy and, 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 and so on, maybe, maybe this is a good way. Pray for people. Ten people in your life. I don't mean Aunt Gertrude in Freeport, Maine. Pray for her too. I'm talking about ten people in your life who you have contact with. And just pray for them. And once, once every three weeks or so, tell them you're praying for them. My, one of my guys right now is Mark who works behind the counter at the Walgreens drugstore. And I'm able to talk with him a little bit more every time when there's not a long line waiting. You want to turn people off, talk to somebody about Jesus where there's a long line waiting for you. <laughs> but Mark's my guy now. But there was a guy named Brad years ago. Been a former NFL football player. I used to live in Santa Barbara, California. If you believe in Jesus, when you die, you go to Santa Barbara. But nevertheless, I was living there and I'd do uh, four working lunches a week. Brad was a guy who owned the restaurant. Every time I saw him, I would make sure I had small talk with him. Hey, Brad, I like the mahi-mahi sandwich. I hope you keep it on the menu. Hey, Brad, how's business? Did you see the game last night? This sort of thing. Three weeks passed, and I said to him, You know what, Brad? I pray for you every day. I've never said that to a person and had them respond, Well, would you stop it? Most people are just happy somebody's praying for them. Next three weeks, small talk. That's it. Three weeks later, hey, Brad, I pray for you every day. He said, Jerry, you said that before. I didn't really believe you. But if you're saying it again, you must really be praying for me. I said, Brad, I never miss. He said, would you pray for my boys too? I wrote down the names of his boys. I wish you could have been there five months later when my daughter came back from youth group to say, Dad, one of the guys brought Brad's son to youth group, and he gave his heart to Jesus tonight. My kids know that God answers these prayers. It was about nine months after that, Brad came up to me and he said, Jerry, i got to talk to you after lunch. I called my secretary. He's a big guy, former NFL football player. So I said, okay, Brad, we'll go to lunch. Or excuse me, we'll go get coffee. We go down, we get coffee, and he pours out his life to me. The deepest we had ever been in conversation was, as far as spiritual things was just me telling him I prayed for him every day. And he pours out his heart to me. Probably things were percolating inside. Where does he go with it? And he goes to the person he knows has been praying for him. Three hours he shares with me such brokenness and sorrow, weeping. I said, Brad, I think you need Jesus in your life. I shared the gospel in about five minutes, a simple gospel. Simple enough a child could understand, complex enough scholars have never plumbed the depths of it. And he heard me, and he said, you know what, Jerry, I think I need Jesus too, but I don't want to give him my life like it is right now. I think I want to fix it first. And after I fix it, then I'll give it to him. I said, well, it's not the way it's usually done. You can try it like that, but if it doesn't work for you, give me a call. (laughs) And we went back to every three weeks, me telling him I was praying for him, having small talk with him the other times in between. Five months later, he calls me up at my office. He says, Jerry, my way is not working. Can I come talk to you? I never saw anybody use more Kleenex than that former NFL football player used when he came to Jesus. And then we started follow up. Anybody can pray for people and tell them they're praying for them and watch God start to work. Watch stuff percolate into the conversation. That's an easy way. There's another way you've got contact evangelism. Jesus, he never met the woman at the well before, he just talked with her. Uh, Paul was in the Agora in Acts 17 in Athens and just talked to people on the streets. That's a way that people can do it. You don't have to do it that way. Everybody's probably got unique ways. What's the non-negotiable is that God wants to use you. He uniquely wired you and put you in circumstances for his kingdom. How you do it, there's lots of ways. Sometimes it's contact, like Jesus and Paul. And, 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 and I, I can remember sometimes I would just go out on the streets when I lived in Santa Barbara. I go with Wheaton students now to Ogilvy Transportation Center. About once a month I'll go out with them. I've had, I, I don't think I've ever been out where I didn't have many significant conversations with people. I think people want to talk about what's going on inside. We live in a culture that is so suppressed spiritual aspiration and desire. Paul, uh, Augustine said, The hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. I think people want to talk about it, but where in our culture, if you're not in a church, where do you talk about these things? And you go and you engage people in conversations in a thoughtful way, and you're surprised how many want to talk about Jesus. It's amazing to me. I, I remember when I lived in Santa Barbara, I used to take people out on the street, State Street is a place where there's all these cafes and tables and stuff like that and i would just share we'd meet at 7 30 i'd share with them a few things about what i've been learning about how to share your faith we'd pray for 10 minutes and we'd be out on the street by eight o'clock i said if you've never shared before just come with me and i'll share first time second time uh, i'll let you share how you came to faith and the third time i'll let you start and i'll be here to back you up well it was great if you had one other person who came up with you this one night i had five guys came up to me and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know about you. I don't know what to do in these circumstances, but that's the circumstance God gave me. Lord, I'm praying as we drive to the boulevard. I have no clue what to do about this. Please open my eyes and ears and be attentive. How do you walk up six people to somebody and say, "Can we talk with you for a few minutes? <laughs> well, I happened to see five UCSB, University of California, Santa Barbara students. I, I, I assume that's what they were, and in fact it was, walking down the street. I said, you guys, you guys, listen. I'm a pastor at this church up on the hill here. I've got these five guys with me that have never shared their faith before in their life. Can you imagine that? They're nervous as all get out. Do you think if you're not doing anything, they could try to do this once with you, and you could kind of give them some feedback? As a matter of fact, push back. If they're not clear, push back. Make sure they're really clear. These guys go, yeah, sure. Yeah, we're not doing anything. Four of the five guys came to Jesus. And, and these five guys that went out with me, they led up. One of them was a captain of the fire department. He later became the chief of the Santa Barbara County Fire Department. He led all kinds of people to Jesus. And whenever they had the Christian Firefighters Conference, National Conference, he was the guy teaching the classes on evangelism. And I was with him when he, it, it, I, I got to watch uh, um, the obstetrics of his first ushering somebody into the kingdom, spiritual birth. It was a blast, but that's just through contact evangelism. doesn't always go well, but sometimes it does. matter of fact, sometimes it doesn't go well if you're afraid of striking out, don't play baseball. But if you never play baseball, you'll never know the joy of hitting a home run. People around you want to hear about Jesus. God strategically placed you. So one one day I was sitting at home, I used to have Fridays off. And I said, Lord, there's people on your radar screen who are not yet on mine opened my eyes just then the garbage guy pulled up i go wow he comes by my house every week about 10 o'clock on fridays i don't even know his name i just started praying for the garbage guy next week it was a hot part of the of the year i had a glass of iced tea all ready for this guy I hear the truck coming. I go rushing out there just as he pulls up. It was one of those trucks where they'd walk behind and throw the garbage in the in the basket in the back. And he comes around the thing, uh, back and he sees me. He's kind of shocked. I say, you look like you could use a break. You drink the tea, I'll throw the trash. I put the tea in his hands, I throw the trash, and I'm looking out of the corner of my eye and he's looking at this tea. He's looking at me, you know, who is this guy? Is this safe? He takes a little safe sip, you know. I said, what's your name? He said, Mike. He's got a name. I erased garbage guy and put Mike on my prayer list. And every week I was out there with something cold for him to drink in the hot part of the year, something hot for him to drink in the cold part of the year. And one day he came by at noon. I said, Mike, you came by pretty late today. He said, yeah, I had some problems on my route. So well, it's near lunchtime. Did you eat lunch yet? He said, Nope. So you want me to make you a sandwich? He says, Oh, okay. He came in and I made him a sandwich. I didn't know those guys could do that. You know what else? He changed his route and came by at noon every week after that. (laughs) I made him lunch all the time, and it was in that context I was able to share the gospel with him. We started follow-up stuff. And then he ended up taking his wife to church and his kids, and then it wasn't long after that he got traded off, and I had a new guy, Mick. And there was Steve, the mailman. He came by my house every day. What do you do with the mailman when you happen to notice them coming by? I always ask them if they need to use the bathroom. Just simple human acts of kindness opens doors. Jesus said a cup of cold water could do it. And, 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 and so Steve, I was able to lead him to Jesus and later his kids. It doesn't always go well, but sometimes it does. That's contact evangelism. How about context? You find yourself in a context. What do you do there? I think you should begin with public questions. What's your name? That's a public question. If you meet a person from a city, you're in that city, are you from this city? That's a public question. Listen to the answer. In the answer, you get permission to go deeper. I was giving some CS, most of my academic works on CS Lewis. I was giving some CS Lewis lectures in Bratislava, Slovakia one spring break. People drop me off at Vienna airport to fly back to Chicago. I'm sitting, I get checked in, I'm in the waiting room, and, and the flight's delayed three hours. I love the anonymity of airports. I pull out a book, I start reading. All of a sudden, this woman comes in with a lanyard and, and, and a clipboard, and she's going up to people. Vienna a German-speaking city. She's talking to people in German. I figure she's doing a survey for the airport. Sure enough, a few minutes, she comes up to me and speaks in flawless English. I'm going, what am I? I feel insecure. What am I worrying that she knew to speak to me in English instead of German? Somebody once said to me, "Well, didn't she say you were reading a book?" She probably saw it was English and thought she better not start with German. Stupid, you know. So there you go. So I said to her, "What's your name?" Public question. She said, Allegra. And sure enough, she was doing a survey for the airport. I said, Allegra, are you from Vienna? No, I'm from southern Austria. Listen. What brought you to Vienna then? Public question now because of the information she gave me. I'm a student. Oh, public question. Now, going deeper, where do you go to school? University of Vienna. What are you studying there? Anthropology. As we got deeper and deeper, I found out that her father was the only one still in southern Austria. He was a bitter man. His wife had left. Allegra's mother had left to go to Canada to live with her lover. And and she even thought, Allegra thought, for good reason, he was such a bitter, toxic person. And her brother was at the university. They didn't get along very well. And not only that, she had said it was worse than that. And I said, how's that? She said, my boyfriend went to Florence to study art, told me to wait for him. I dutifully waited for him for six months. He came back yesterday and told me he found somebody better in Florence. You know, the rules didn't apply to him, apparently. And she was broken. And I know what she needs to hear. And I said, Allegra, you got to do your survey. But I've been sent here to tell you something. And then she thought I was a plant at the airport to see if she was doing her job. I said, no, it has nothing to do with that. But people, you have been sent. That's a non-negotiable. I said, I have been sent here to tell you something. She goes through her questions real quick. How long it take you to get checked in? How long it take you to do that? And so on. And, and, and at the end of her time, she looks at me and she says, what were you sent here to tell me? I said, oh, Allegra, in a world where you feel so abandoned by so many, the God of the universe knows you and He loves you. Allegra, He loves you. Sometimes you have to say it three times for it to sink in. And I said, Allegra, he loves you. She burst into loud sobs. People are looking over at me to see if I'm torturing this poor girl. And she says to me in response through her tears, but I've done so many bad things with my life. I said, oh, Allegra, he knows about everyone. And to prove his love for you, that's why Jesus died, to forgive you of all of it. He loves you. It's not that hard and if you ask the public questions you let that person in the contact situation take you deeper i was on an airplane coming back from a theology conference i'd read a paper at the theology conference i get on the plane to fly back to chicago from san antonio i'm sitting by the window guy comes in sits on the middle seat and he says to me rats i've got a middle seat if i'd have been really spiritual i'd have given him my window seat but i didn't do that, that was not one of my better days." A minute later, a guy comes and sits on the aisle seat, and he says, Professor Root. I go, you got the drop on me. I don't think we've ever met. I was at the paper you read at the theology conference. So he and I start talking a little theology. We got this guy in the middle seat. That's a circumstance that you didn't ask for, but you find yourself in it. Make the most of it. We talked for a minute later, and I turned to this guy, and I say, what's your name? He says, Sean. I said, Sean, forgive us. We're at a theology conference. I don't want you to feel unincluded in this conversation. We don't want to talk over you. And then I said to Sean, Sean, are you a spiritual person? Because we're talking about a spiritual topic. It's a public question. He says, I am. I am. I said, tell me about that. He said, I went to... to, um, Uh, Peru and studied with a shaman once. I don't know what you do when you hear something like that. I've never studied with a shaman. I have no clue what that experience would be like. But I do know this. The Bible says God will not put out the smoking flax, and He won't break the bruised reed. And if you see a little smoke or spiritual interest, believe that's an asset, not a liability. And I turned to Sean, and I said, Sean, tell me about that. He said, I saved up my money I saw I could study with a shaman. I saved up my money, my vacation time, and I went to Peru. And I spent three weeks with the shaman. I said, how was that for you, Sean? He said, it was the worst money I ever spent in my life. He said, what's in it for you, Jerry? And I said, Sean, it's all about this. The God of the universe loves us. He loves us unconditionally. There's nothing you could do to improve his love. There's nothing you could do to diminish it. He loves you. And not only that, all the goofiness in our life, he forgives us of it all. And he's willing to enter into the life that we have lived and the messes that we have made. And he's willing to be Lord of our life and bring order out of the chaos. Sean goes, that's that's the most comforting thing I've ever heard in my life. And I said, well, Sean, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? He said, none. And he prays with me on the plane and gives his heart to Jesus. The guy sitting on the aisle was a Ph.D. student in apologetics at Trinity Seminary. He's used to building scaffolding. He's not used to obstetrics. And he's freaking out. And he turned to Sean the rest of the flight back and started speaking into his life words of encouragement and words of follow-up. And it was so much fun. So much fun. Okay, so I could tell you a million stories. I got stories where it didn't go so well, but then I found out years later that the person, that was the the spark that started them thinking, and years later they come back and tell me they've come to faith. You don't know where you are in the process. Just be faithful if you feel the promptings of the Holy Spirit to talk to somebody. But what about follow-up? Let me tell you one last story about follow-up so you'll know not to love them and leave them. When you have an opportunity to lead somebody to Christ, how can you encourage them to grow? So, I, I think that one of the best places you can share the gospel is at church. If, if, if Pastor John gave all of you a seating chart and you had to sit in the same place every Sunday, you'd all rebel. But look at you, you sit in the same place every Sunday anyway. <laughs> what if you became a pastor of your pew? Years ago when I was pastoring, I, I had a woman come up to me just before the service start, and she said, elderly woman, and she said, Pastor, there's somebody sitting in my pew. I said, wow, he probably doesn't know the rules. Maybe he's a visitor. Maybe you could sit behind him and pray for him during the service. Invite him to go out for soup after church or something like that. To her credit, she did it. She just never thought about it before. Bless her heart. And if you see somebody sitting near your pew and you've never seen them before, what do you do? So one Sunday I saw this guy sitting in front. And, and sometimes I'd go up to people and I'd say, I don't think I've ever seen you before. And they say, well, Pastor, I've been going here for 30 years. You know, I go, okay. But, you know, just go, lean into it, right? Be awkward. It's okay. But usually I had it right. And I said to this guy, what's your name? He said, my name's Robert. I said, Robert, you look like a visitor. I don't know if I've ever seen you before. He says, I am a visitor. I said, what brings you here? He says, I'm a UCSB student, and my, my girlfriend broke up with me this last week, and I per, feel pretty beat up, and I thought maybe I could go to church and find something. He could have come in and walked out. Nobody talked with him. I said, you mind if I share with you the central message in the Bible? And he says, no. And I shared the gospel, and Robert gave his heart to Jesus. After I lead somebody to Jesus, I always take them to John 6:47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Did you believe? Yes. What do you have? Eternal life. I say, yeah, but it's not just forever. It's got a quality to it. I take him to John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. It's about a relationship. And then I take them to Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, and I explain the, three, the four soils to them. And I say, which soil would you like to be? And I've never had anybody say, I'd like to be the weedy one. You know, shoot for mediocrity. That's my aim in life. And I say to them instead, uh, they always say they want to be the fruitful one. I say, I want to be fruitful too. What if we start getting together and encouraging each other to be fruitful? And then we learn about Jesus. We learn about the love of Jesus. And then we learn about being in the Word. We learn about prayer. We learn about being in worship with other believers, and then we learn about being in small group with other believers where there could be some real life sharing. We learn about giving time and resources so that we can cultivate magnanimity. God doesn't need our money. He's doing fine, but we don't want to cultivate hoarding self-interest. And then we talk about sharing our faith, how to be filled with the Spirit. And then we talk about sharing our faith. And I took Robert out to UCSB's campus, and we, we talked to some people, and Robert saw it wasn't so hard. Nobody came to faith. I wish I could say the whole world blew up with revival and all that stuff. Nothing happened. That next week, Robert calls me up, and he says, Jerry, I'm talking to my roommate, Paul. He's got some questions. I don't know how to answer them. Can we come up to your office? I said, yeah, come on up. They came up. I was able to answer Paul's questions. I don't know if we get to the bottom of any of these questions, but you could get substantive answers, satisfactory answers. And, and I said to Paul, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? He said, None. And I could have just jumped in and prayed with him and missed a great opportunity. I said, Robert, why don't, you, why don't you pray with your roommate? And he prays with Paul. Paul trusts Christ. And then Robert starts following up Paul. And then those two started going off to, to share Christ with people that they met on campus. And then the amazing thing is, about six months later, about six months later, Robert says he's leaving Santa Barbara. He's going to San Diego. I say, "Wait, why are you going there, Robert?" He says, "Because my family all live there. My friends live there, and they don't know Jesus yet. And I want to be in proximity to them." He left my life. Shortly after that, I went to Wheaton to teach to teach uh, uh, at Wheaton College. And when I went to teach at Wheaton College, Robert was out of my life. I was out of Wheaton, and. It, wasn't long, after several years, I was invited to go to Talbot Seminary, which is a graduate school at Biola University, to do a special meetings with the seminarians. I'm supposed to meet them the first day for breakfast at this restaurant. How many of you have been to Southern California before? Do any of you know the restaurant Mimi's? Looks like somebody went in and shot it with a foo-foo gun, that place. It's kind of a crazy place. I'm pulling into the parking lot to meet with these seminarians, and who's pulling in right next to me in the parking lot? Robert! I go, Robert, this is so weird. You moved to San Diego, I moved to Chicago. Here we are pulling in this parking lot in La Mirada, California. What are the odds of that? He says, no, 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 Jerry, I'm here to have breakfast with you. I said, no, 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 Robert, I'm here to meet with seminarians. Oh, my heavens. And he's pastoring a church in Arizona these days and leading people to Jesus, and isn't it fun? People, God wants to use you. You matter. Your circumstances for the greater progress of gospel. And if you share the gospel, you'll grow. People will ask you questions. You'll grow. People will scrutinize your life. You'll grow. And you'll keep seeing Jesus show up. And it's cool. Let's pray. Father, I pray that every person within the sound of my voice will have this day heard your voice that you will take the crumbs and multiply them even after this morning. And I pray every person within the sound of my voice would see at least one person come to faith this year. Because people need to know that they are loved by you, that forgiveness is a real possibility, and that you are intimately interested in entering their lives and bringing order out of the chaos. Let them see those joys this year, I pray for Christ's sake. Amen.